Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. It's a pleasure today to be here with Kristen Sneddon, who is a Santa Barbara City Council member and also a professor of environmental geology at Santa Barbara City College. And Kristen and I, we're going to talk the first part of this podcast about climate change and climate science. I'm going to get there in a second. Kristen, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? It's always fun to come on the show and and check in. Yes, thank you. I appreciate it. And I wanted to reach out to you. I had you on my mind when I did this recent podcast with Elliot Jacobson, who is a self-professed doomer. He embraces that title and that name. And we did a podcast based off of a tweet that he made that showed uh, ocean temperatures in the North Atlantic and how they have increased dramatically. And his tweet got a lot of attention globally. I had him on the podcast and I received lots, you know, thousands of more views because of my conversation with him. And so I wanted to talk to you because Elliot is a doomer, which essentially anyone can go watch that if they want to. But in summary, he believes that it's too late, that there's nothing left that we can do for human beings to save the uh to save the planet for our existence he says we're at sort of the sixth extinction he's thinking about what happens after humans and how can we preserve the planet for whatever species or whatever comes next and on one hand it's a very sort of obviously uh, you know down doomer kind of perspective but he's actually a pretty optimistic his, his approach is you know People have already ruined the planet, so let's enjoy what we can right now. Let's still be good environmentalists, but let's not live under this illusion that anything that we're doing is going to really help. He thinks it's too late. That's controversial. There are a lot of people who feel the way he does. There are a lot of people who don't. I wanted to talk to you, Kristen, because you are somebody who is an expert in this field. You teach this. You live this. What do you think? Is it too late for human beings to save this planet for human beings? Well, I certainly hope not. <laughs> I think, um, I mean, the first thing to say is that um, the data is the data. And then being a, a doomer or not a doomer is sort of based on the perspectives of how to treat that data and, and what to feel about it or think about it philosophically. But the data is the data. There's no question that we are in a period of time of just intense, exponentially increasing global warming. Every month is, is a hotter month on record than ever. The, the, the spike that um, uh, Elliot was showing in, the, in his tweet was absolutely measurable, it's confirmable by NOAA data. There have been climate scientists tracking this for a long time. And absolutely, yes, this is, um, we're on a, a, a brink and a really um, important turning point. And depending on how we respond and understand what's happening, um, it's gonna have really different consequences at the end. So, um, and we can talk a little bit about that, whether I think, I mean, I think we really are at that moment where we are, uh, have already had irreversible change um, and whether that is then going to um, be the complete end um, 
yet. I think that's maybe maybe debatable and and what to do. And and you mentioned I teach environmental geology, and that's one of the um, I don't know the big challenges in working with students in their twenties and and really trying to figure out what to do with their lives and why I think it's so applicable to everyone is you know usually the way I structure the lectures on. Monday, I call it the doom and gloom, you know, Monday, you address and assess and figure out what the problem is. And then on Wednesday, we talk about mitigations and mitigations can be either how do you head off climate change, but we pretty much in the scientific community agree that, you know, it's here and anybody outside of the scientific community can walk around in the world and know we have atmospheric rivers, we have debris flows, we have intense rain, intense drought, intense fires. And, you know, you don't have to be studying the climate science to, to know that that's there. But mitigations are both, you know, two-pronged, heading that off, but also then how to deal with it. So, so yes, sea level is rising. So what will our plans be to mitigate? Yes, fires are, are, are more intense. So what do we do to mitigate that? So it's, it's um, I don't know about, labeling it doomer or or pragmatist or optimist or or what what label to put on it but there's no question these things are intensifying and we need to address them so one of the things that came up in this conversation and obviously i'm a journalist which means i know a little bit about a lot of things you have to become an expert in that field enough to write about it and report about it so I'm not, uh, uh, I, I teach journalism. I don't teach climate change science. So some of my questions as they were to Elliot are going to come across a little gen general, but, but they have to be because most of us who live in the world um, need to understand these in a way that makes sense to, to, to their daily lives. So I want to ask you, one of the things that Elliot had said was e-bikes, electric cars, wind energy, solar energy. He said he would be hard pressed to say that's better for the planet than not, because he he talked about Jivon, Jivon's paradox and how the more energy that we create, the more energy we use, and it ends up being net worse for the planet than had we not created these new forms of energy. And we're at this time, of course, where, I mean, you can't go anywhere without seeing somebody on an electric bike, uh, people who have electric cars, we sort of feel like, oh, they're, they're great environmentalists, you know, and, and there's this, this energy around electric as a way of reducing consumption of fossil fuels. Can you talk about people who choose to go that route? And is it is it good for the planet? Uh, yeah, it's good for the planet. I mean, I think, again, this is sort of, you know, you can meld philosophical, you can meld um, economics and, and with these questions also of sort of what makes healthier, happier people and also what could actually um, move the needle. And the two main things are electrify everything, you know, electrify homes, electrify cars, vehicles, you know, everything possible. Um, and and handle the transportation issues as well. Um, so so the city we went to Santa Barbara Clean Energy, um, and most people don't even realize that right now in the city your electrical socket, unless you opted out or opted some different way, which most people didn't opt out, um, is is a hundred percent 
sustainable energy. It's 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 carbon free, um, without you doing anything different. And and we're using Edison's transmission lines, and we're purchasing a, a sort of broader portfolio of energy. And I I would say that I don't know that we know yet what is going to be like the emergent alternative energy. But over time, like if you look, you know, hundreds of years back, we've had different uh, predominant energy cycles. You know, there was a time when wood burning was predominant and then coal. And then now we're in this sort of cycle where it's a it's a mixture of, of wind, solar, uh, water, tidal. And um, to me, there's no question that um, each one of these comes with a pro and a con, but that even if you stacked all those cons together, um, they don't add up to what the petroleum industry is responsible for. Um, and, and we can talk about that on a social justice issue also. Um, and I know that's always, um, I, I mean, I heard it in the interview, it is a, a very big concern about child labor um, and what it takes to create batteries. And of yeah. course that's unacceptable, but that's also unacceptable in the oil industry, the, the devastation and to third world countries and to indigenous people and what happens in that industry is um, also egregious. So it's not a matter of um, one or the other. It's it's sort of the human factor and what can we do across all of these to to make that better for for everyone. Um, you know, people said that about electric cars or about even hybrids or solar panels. And you know, with more and more demand. And if we let the solar lobby do its thing, instead of having powerful petroleum lobbies saying that you're, you know, stealing sunshine or going to run out of sunshine or run out of wind, if you use it, um, the, the idea is that it would keep getting better and, and more sustainable. So just because it isn't perfect today, I'm not willing to say that the trade-off um, isn't worth it and to put all of our efforts into getting off of petroleum. We have to get off fossil fuels. So what you said makes sense. And, and you said at the beginning of the podcast that the data is the data and, and no one's disputing any kind of data here. It's, it's bad. It's been getting bad. There've been efforts to stop this, slow it down. Can you talk a little bit about how much, and I asked Elliot this question too, it's like, we know it's bad. We have a lot of people have optimism and hope and, 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 and positivity toward changing things. How soon, if, if it's not too late, how much time do we have to actually do this in a way that is going to significantly change our, our, our planet for the better? How much is it five years, 10 years, 20 years, hundred years? How much, how drastic is the situation? Um, it's drastic and it depends on how drastically we address it right now. So I really applaud Elliot's uh, sort of um, display of that data that shows that the moment is now. The moment is now to make these changes. It's not tomorrow, but we still collectively need to make those changes. I just want to show you really quickly. I can just um, share my screen for a second, just kind of to show um can you see this here? This yes. Year? yes. Yeah. Um, just to kind of show how, um, you know, people have been tracking this for a long time. And I'm just going to look at this. This is um, 
you know, a recent, this is our world in data, and it's all just um, accumulated data, similarly to what um, Elliot does too, and just how you present data tells different, different stories in different ways. But in this chart, I'm just gonna just kind of slide this back a little bit, go back in time to when um, we weren't producing so much um, CO2 across the globe. And then you can see that historically the numbers going up, 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 and we have this exponential rise of, of where we are. And it's tied to how many fossil fuels we consume. I mean, it's directly linked to fossil fuel consumption and where we are. So clearly we're at this, you know, very high point, projected high points. And if I kind of scale this back to, and this is, you know, this isn't my data, this is, you know, available worldwide um, peer review data. This kind of shows how drastically you would have to come down in that consumption mm. to get down to background levels again by say 2100. Yeah. Um, and then there are you know, other charts and graphs that can show what, why that correlation to the tipping point of global temperatures or you know, the ability of the ocean to absorb heat, or um, we haven't even talked about the doomsday glacier. I do wanna talk about that one too, but you know, we're, we're, at it, we're at this inflection here. There, we are at a period of time where it really depends on how quickly we can taper that down to then get out. So the longer we wait, you know, if, if, if we had started back here, this is a nice gentler curve down. But, you know, if we're going to start today, tomorrow, then it's a much steeper decline to try and get to where we need to go. So the moment's now. I mean, this this is, the it, it is imperative. There is urgency. Um, and he's absolutely right about that. And, and climate scientists, um, I think, maybe lack the uh, urgency message to, to get that out because it's, you know, very data driven, um, but then how you translate data to action, I'm gonna stop my share on that um, right there, but, but, but translating that to action is I think um, the all hands on deck. So you have, I think um, in the latest cover of uh, Nature Magazine, the climate change edition, um, it has several articles in there about tying together sort of um, philosophy and climate change, but also economics and climate change and what it's going to take to get people to care. So people started buying Teslas because oh, they could buy a luxury car that also met their, you know, electric needs and they were saving money on gas where the prices were going up to the roof. So if you can make an economic appeal to people, there's a certain a group of people that will respond to that. Or if you can make a, um, you know, there's on, on that cover too, is about sort of making a futures market on gambling on what those numbers will, will be. And that if you can get people to invest in, you know, yeah. betting on whether it's going to go up or down, um, that that will get people to, you know, care more. But I think the missing link is, um, and this is what really stood out to me with what Elliot was talking about, I think the missing link is the humanity of it, the, the community. And um, that's the part where I think, and that this ties into, we can, we can talk about city politics, we can talk about um, nationally or downtowns or anything. And, and I think, um, well, this, this too, I don't know, did you read this? Did you read the happy city? 
the no. Barbara Reed book. Okay, <laughs> this is really um, revolutionary to me because it talks all about um, the same principles that that um, we're talking about in the previous interview too. That you know, when you have enough, people mm. are happy. When you have too much, like you know, it's with money, with sizes mm. of a house with um, traffic, with any of these things, if you have too much, then you go into unhappiness zone. And this is based on like Gallup polls and years of longitudinal research about what makes people happy isn't more and more and more. So that that concept of growth being what's going to bring success or happiness, like, no, we don't need to keep increasing the um, economy and increasing what we have and own and the size of our McMansions or um, these things. We really need to be thinking smaller, local, local food, local growing, local downtown, not commuting. Um, it all ties in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are very good points. The the minim minimalist approach and, and that is something like our society is based off of like how big your bank account is and your house is and your car is. And is that really good when there's a finite number of people who can achieve that status and also resources that people have that we all have to share. I want to ask you being a professor in academia, there's this sort of like belief or like subculture that suggests that, academia is, and we see this in all professions, right? Like these skeptics say academia is corrupt and they've lost sight of their job, which is teaching. And instead they're part of the problem. And so there's this subtext here that academia is not going to want to share and be authentic with the real climate change data because it's uh, not advantageous to them in terms of their teaching, their jobs, their career, their ability to go out and be keynote speakers and and be able to, to make money off their consulting work. And that if we create this illusion, this is their words, that we can still fix this. And there's we have to just be positive and hopeful that we're all good people and we can save the planet. And there's this subtext, and Elliot mentioned it, that like, that's like, that's not good. Nobody wants to risk their future and their job by saying, what's real, that it's too late. You are in academia. You teach this stuff. Is there any truth to people being concerned about the future as it relates to what is really going to happen with the planet and their own personal interest? Is, is that a real thing or somewhere in the middle or what do you say? Um, well, everything has an element of reality there too. Yeah. So um, I'll just say from my perspective, and you know this, I'll start with City College and then I'll talk about grant funding and other sort of paradigms but at city college as you know we are teachers and and we are not grant funded by research um, we don't need to be constantly um, looking for a problem and solving it um, in a way too so in a lot of ways we're really um, liberated to to teach to what students need to know to be in the world and to and to move to their next steps of what they want to do. So that's one thing is I would say at a, at a city college level, at least that's not even a factor. Mm -hmm. um, but aside from that, and, and um, you know, my background is in environmental geophysics, and that's I used to 
um, work for the USGS in Denver and groundwater modeling, groundwater contamination, um, and you know, going going way back in in research where grant funding is really important. And I can speak to that. Um, a lot of the funding that we got for projects that I was working on was from the EPA. And the EPA very much wants to see the real data and the real answers. And in from my perspective, any climate scientist today or water scientist or fire scientist or um, really any um, buddy in the sciences today um, is talking about this and, and has been, and this is real data and addressing it. And I think if any uh, climate teacher in, in any of those fields, any of the earth and planetary sciences or earth system sciences, if they weren't showing this data, they would be considered outdated and um, not really uh, being honest or truthful with with what they're with their teaching. And students notice, like if in my slides, um, and I have to update them every year, obviously, because there's new data. And if if I'm presenting data from 2012, even they're like, well, but what is it today? You know, what is it right now? And there's a demand from students too to to have like the accurate, most recent data and information. So I, I would say about that, like, um, you know, it's not about being positive and hopeful in in not showing what the data is. And in in my way of thinking too, and with environmental geology, you you have to clearly assess eyes wide open the problem so that then you can start planning the mitigations. And maybe some of those mitigations are, it's too late to change it, but what are you going to do to keep people safe? Or what are you going to do to, to make sure that, um, you know, people can stay living where they're living? Um, but we're definitely heading into a period where there's gonna be discomfort um, mm -hmm. to, to address these, these issues. You know, one more thing about that. I learned about greenhouse gases in the 70s when I was in sixth grade. And I still remember my teacher, I think it was Mr. Dibley. And, um, you know, our textbook was from Texas. It was not like a, a crazy newfangled textbook. And greenhouse gases were, it's just a fact. And this is maybe something they can talk about that difference. Like a greenhouse gas is just a molecule that's of such a size that the solar radiation can't re-radiate back out. So like water, is a greenhouse gas, for instance, mm -hmm. you know, carbon dioxide, uh, sulfur dioxide, all these greenhouse gases. But being a greenhouse gas doesn't mean bad. It's just a factual description of a gas that's of a size of a molecule that prevents re-radiation of, of solar heat. What becomes problematic is when you're out of balance, when you have too many and things are are warming up faster than evolution can keep up with or than species can keep up with. So it's, it's um, you know, back in the 70s, we right. were talking about greenhouse gases and how that caused a warming planet. And it only became politicized more recently, but it's not been something de debated. I mean, greenhouse gas emissions lead to a warming planet. A warming planet leads to melting glaciers, um, melting glaciers and, and a warming ocean leads to sea level rise, but also extreme weather events. And that's new too. Um, everything is 
you know, extreme wet or extreme dry. Atmospheric river, channelized water versus, you know, dispersed storms. Um, everything is just much more intense. I forgot well, the question. No, no, no. You, you, you mentioned sea level rise. You mentioned glaciers. So you mentioned you wanted to mention something related to the conversation around the doomsday glacier. What, what did yeah. you want to say? Yeah, so the Doomsday Glacier, it's, um, Thwaites Glacier is the, the real name, but just recently in the last couple of months, um, it's sort of come to the attention that that one particular glacier is melting faster than thought before. And this is something like, you know, when, when you teach climate science, you, you see these like little inklings of things happening and happening. So like over the last couple of years, we've been talking about how glaciers are calving faster because you know, further in their lakes that warm and then they, they break that part off. So the Doomsday Glacier, Thwaites Glacier, is um, much more eroded underneath than they thought, happening much faster. And it could, in an instantaneous type event, in one calving event, cause two feet of sea level rise. Oh. And this is, um, you know, it was on Science Friday. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's out there in the, in the um, general understanding and and so and then when we talk about sea level rise or mitigations we can no longer talk about times we can't say oh in 30 years will be this much sea level rise and in 50 years will be this much we have to go by um it's sort of an exponential assumption that it's going to just be faster and faster and faster but we don't know how fast yet so that's where the data um keeps keeps adding to it but every, every year is warmer than the last and this warming trend um in the antarctic also contributes to to that so you know as you sit here and you teach this stuff what is the message that you try to leave your students with obviously you're not uh you know as as some of the skeptics will say all college teachers are out there trying to indoctrinate you're obviously not doing that you're presenting them the data but what is the if if the doomer approach is not the attitude like what what do you think is the best way that people should approach this issue of of climate change because let me just say for a minute because one of the questions i threw out there is i get it elliot the doomer perspective it makes a lot of sense but the problem with that is that these people who deny climate change, these people who say, oh, this has happened over the years, uh, you know, look at the planet, it's natural, it's normal. Um, if people get the assumption that there's nothing you can do, it's too late, it almost feeds into those people who deny climate change. That, well, what's the point of doing anything then, right? And then that is a situation where, we could actually make that line you short, you know, that instead of drastically fixing, drastically getting worse. So what realistically, like, should we buy an electric bicycle other than scaring everybody downtown? Uh, we're going to get to that in a second, but <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, is, are those good things? So um, our poor kids, you know, our, our 20 somethings, you know, I've, I've kids who are 23, 20 year old and, and 15, and they have grown up with the knowledge that, um, this is the world they're in. Like they didn't, they didn't get to grow up with the hope that, oh, we could change things and things will be better. Um, the thing is 
living in that type of sort of um sort of dystopian reality and i and i think our this generation really feels it and i'm and i'm sure i mean i know you have kids i'm sure they question sometimes what is the point and what to move forward to so i will say in in teaching in particular i have students mostly who are in their 20s who mostly are not science majors like they're not they take environmental geology many of them are communications majors or um, film majors or, or a lot of different disciplines and my goal is to um one show them for themselves how to look at data how to find information and how to not feel hopeless so things that we talk about with each one of these and, and it can cause a lot of anxiety actually like you know, on the Monday, and I, that's why I tell them on Wednesday, we're going to talk about what to do about all these things, because the Monday is pretty, it's, it's pretty, um, it's a downer, for sure, like really articulating what the problem is. So for instance, on, um, on sea level rise, we might talk all about, you know, locally, this is what is going to happen to the shoreline, to the beaches, to, um, you know, El Estero to the Lower East Side. We talk about it in terms of climate justice also and, and um, environmental stewardship as well, but really as a social justice issue also and how it impacts individuals and communities, some communities more than others. So framing the problem, but then that that isn't the end. I mean, the, there are so many people working on this problem and not just from the the science perspective but now the policy perspective and and something that i sort of saw missing i think for a long time was that connection between the two there you know with the bren school of environmental policy it's really important um connection to make back to if you have the the data just in a vacuum then it can feel pretty hopeless you know there's data it's getting warmer I don't know what can I do about it. I'll go, you know, I'll go to Vegas and enjoy myself and you know use the electricity and the water and the you know whatever and and not worry about it. Um, but that's not the real answer because we still have impacts. You know, we still can make a big difference in in um, quality of life, but longevity. And um, we're already having uh, climate refugees. We're already having issues with, um, I don't know, that ocean rescue last week. I don't even want to talk about that, but the amount of money that went into on the same day, you know, the, the one uh, submersible that sank right. with, with five people in it versus on that very same day, right. um, a boat that had uh, immigrants who are trying to, you know, flee hundreds of people sunk and not not the same level of, of rescue. Um, so back to just the human element, I really think we have to get back to the human connection of what your individual choices make on larger communities. We just can't think anymore just about well, what benefits me and what, what is more convenient for me or what serves me? We really, and this next generation, these 20-somethings, these, these they feel it. They feel interconnected. They feel like they want to be a broader community who helps each other and solves problems together. Like it's changed even how we do education. We don't do like individual assessments anymore. That's sort of a very American individual 
you know, go it alone kind of thing. We do group looking at problems and group solutions to problems and group buy-in too. That um, So that's my, what I hope is the takeaway with, with students is that you can find the information yourself. You can look at the data yourself and look at what the current solutions are working toward, at least keep working toward. We, we have to, we have to keep working toward believing it can be better. Great. I want to, that's a good segue because I want to sort of do like the last third of the podcast on Santa Barbara specific stuff. Yeah. And I want to ask you, and I want to do it from the climate change discussion to downtown Santa Barbara and use cars as an example. You you showed the book, Happy City. You're on the Santa Barbara City Council. You're a leader on the council. You're deeply involved in the direction everything is going. And we're trying to figure out a downtown right now that works for as many people as possible. And we're coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic. We shut everything down. There used to be cars on State Street, at least for those blocks, those 13 blocks or whatever it is. And and now there's no cars. And now everybody has an opinion on, oh, it's shabby. Oh, it's the greatest thing in the world. You know, it's, it, you know, it looks really bad uh, to, oh, we just need to tweak it. You know, it's a bike thoroughfare. Oh, I, it's unsafe. You know, so there's all these perspectives and the city is really kind of, objectively kind of lost control of, the, of how they're going to fix this because you have a long-term master plan and you got the short term how are we going to deal with this and everyone has an opinion so let's let's go there because climate change is also dry a part of this debate because one of the things is cars right so there are people who don't want cars on state street because they believe that it's bad to be driving downtown. And if you're going to go downtown, walk, ride your bicycle, take the bus, even though we can't take the bus downtown. Um, I mean, in terms of on State Street or, you know, the transit system, we don't have trolleys anymore. So can you talk a little bit about, <laughs> um, and you're, you have a big council meeting coming up on this. Um, you know, what are your views on State Street and how do we make all of these needs of our community blend together? Yeah, such a great question. <laughs> um, so um, back to the environmental geology, you know, first you have to realistically wide-eyed assess a problem and be straightforward about it so that then you can make plans to mitigate and make the world better. I think we're in a sort of position right now where we haven't all agreed on what the assessment of the problem is. And so solutions that are coming out are addressing all different kinds of things. And we have to, I think it would be a good idea to take a step back with the master plan. And like with the, with the master plan way back before COVID, which COVID by the way, is part of a climate change problem. I mean, pandemics are going to be more frequent because of a changing climate also. Um, but uh, taking a step back with the master plan, even before COVID, we were having Delegare Plaza and Library Plaza, recognizing that people like to see each other, people like community, people like passive spaces and park-like environments. But those two weren't tied together. 
and the in-between, um, you know, programming or whatever that was going to be. And so the original idea of the master plan was to tie together Library Plaza, Delaguerre Plaza, the Paseo system, highlight the architecture, but also celebrate the diversity of our community, all ages, all cultures, and not just be for um, sort of one purpose. And personally for myself, and I know you remember when Delaguerre Plaza had benches around it, I used to sit in those benches all the time and read. It was like one of my favorite places to be. Benches are gone. People aren't using that space in the same way. It sort of becomes what, what is this space? And then, you know, if Library Plaza isn't, isn't, um, programmed, it's also going to be just a space. So then downtown, we have this opportunity. And the one thing that keeps coming up over and over and over again, that I think is a real special gift, is that people want to be together. People want to be in community. We have that kind of town that people love seeing each other. And in that Happy Cities book, <laughs> it just, it talks about like all the elements that make people happy is when there's like sort of a gathering area where people can run into each other or, you know, have, have passive space together. And our downtown has the potential to be like the greatest in the world. I genuinely believe that. Like we have the bones, we have the people, we have community that really loves, you know, look at Solstice yesterday. Look at, we, we love to come together and, and um, be in community. I don't think we're capitalizing on that the way that we should. And the master plan, it's having a little bit of a, a rough spot at the moment. And if I don't wholeheartedly and you know honestly assess that and say that, then how can I possibly be part of the solution if I'm not admitting that, yeah, parts of State Street look shabby. Parts of State Street are not the, the gem of Santa Barbara. Parts of the off street are not what we expect to see. But I'm not willing to just throw it all out. I really think we have this moment where we have older people, younger people, families, different people than came to downtown before who really feel um, like they can be there. And every one of these public meetings we have just sort of reconfirms that there is a large number of people in the broader community who are loving coming downtown. Yeah. And then there are always going to be some who want things back the way they were. But cars are isolationist. Cars are individual. They are not community, even though um, cruising, and I did hear your comments about cruising and, and um, the importance to family and cruising time and not spending money. But if if downtown was really programmed right or set up right, and and, what I like is, and the goal to be that you could come downtown without spending money. If there's seating and shade and um, activities that were programmed right, like you could just passively be downtown. And that's what the bikes have brought. People have a way of sort of like engaging with each other downtown without spending money. And that's actually a really big key point for me. I think based on that growth, 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 I think building what a community downtown is based on individuality and individual cars and isolationism, different sides of the sidewalk. I, I don't think that's the direction that I want to go. Love the idea of the trolley, but we need, 
the broader tenets of what it is we're trying to do. And that was the problem with the issue I had with our budget recently too, that um, if we're just so focused on sort of the logistics of how a bike will move on uh, making a sort of bicycle master plan basically for State Street, or um, I don't know, just very sort of, um, I said it at the time, without the heart of what it is that we're doing to serve the community and have community come together, then I really think we've missed the mark quite a bit if that's not what the what the focus is. Yeah, there, there's definitely a generational clash. I cover the HLC meetings. I cover uh, ABR, which is a different jurisdiction. But HLC in particular are, I mean, they're really cool people who serve on that board. Um, they're, they're not necessarily going to be the um, alternative transportation vocal activists that, you know, you're going to see with a younger demographic, but they are people who care about the city. They are people who have been part of the reason why the city is special for decades. And I do think there's a big ageism bias by a lot of people who just take the easy route. And they say that these design boards are, the problem because they're stuck in time. And I don't think that's the case. And I'm kind of in the middle. Like I'm not that demographic. I'm not in my thirties. I'm kind of in that middle. So I can kind of straddle, you know, up both, you know, I kind of see all directions, but these people really love the city and, and they really want it to work for. Yes. If you're 70 years old and healthy, or if you, need support to come downtown if you have a wheelchair that you use that you want to be able to go downtown and not feel like you're the exception you're the problem and what people forget is yes if you're like 35 and healthy and able-bodied and you can move around without much issue then you don't really mind what the parklets look like like you don't care you'll just navigate around them um, but not everyone can do that. And I think part of the discussion, we need to give more deference to some of these elders. Like, like we love our elders in so many other disciplines, but it's like when it comes to designing Santa Barbara, we're like, our elders are the problem. And it just doesn't feel that way. And also, if you watch these meetings, they're not like bringing back cars. Well, maybe, you know, one of them is maybe, you know, every well, the last then, one, they were unanimous on bringing you know, back cars. I was really surprised actually. Well, they they were unanimous in terms of that was brought up and then they scaled back and they're like let's make the parklet smaller. Robert Uli did say if it were up to him, it'd be back. But I think there needs to be some conversation about that that we can't just say we need to plan for everybody who's 40 and under. Like, that's not like, we're talking about like good humanity, night being not, that's not good, right? And so I want to ask you about the bike issue, because that bike issue comes up all the time. Like, there are people who hate bikes downtown, and it's part of it is the electric bikes, because they go so fast. Are you somebody who thinks that that downtown should have bikes? And I'm talking 500 blocks, 600 blocks, 700 blocks. And if so... Should it be just traditional pedal bikes or can it be electric bikes also? I'm so glad you're asking this question. And first of all, I have such huge respect for HLC, the members of HLC, and I take a lot of direction for, 
from them too. Like it really um, <laughs> hurts my heart when um, I, I feel that things are at such odds, but I also feel like with HLC um, that it's sort of council to set the direction of how we want things programmed and then HLC's um, sort of uh, expertise and area to make that beautiful and to make it fit um, sort of the Santa Barbara style. Um, they a little bit in their meeting got into, you know, whether the street should be open or closed to cars. And really, I think the question should be, how, how could it be beautiful if we have parklets? How could it be beautiful if we have defined bike lanes? But, but to the, to the bike question, and, um, this has been an area of extreme frustration for me. And I'll actually loop in um, the State Street Interim Operation Committee. And at the risk of speaking for anybody, you know, that committee is um, Oscar Gutierrez, Mike Jordan, and myself. And for easily the last year and a half, probably longer than that, we have just had our hair on fire of constant requests to please handle this bike situation. I can I can tell you. Um, ideas that I've thrown out there have have something experimental on each block on one block have those sort of elevated armadillo bumps that that cause mm. bikes to meander on another block put benches sideways through the side so that you know have to slow down on another block have a meander um, there are these portable sort of like wave guideline things that the downtown organization showed us that are movable and you could play around with how that would work. We've had over two years, three years where we could be really um, piloting different ideas on different blocks. And even if the blocks were different, at least that would slow people down. Like, oh, what do I have to do on this block to slow down? Um probably two years or more, we have been very, very adamant. We have to address the situation or the support and the momentum of the State Street Master Plan is going to implode or has the potential to just implode. And you can see that. That's what the meetings have devolved into is how to design a bike lane. And the solutions aren't terribly creative. Of, of what's presented either. I mean, it is not a bicycle master plan. It is really needs to take a step up and broader to be looking at like the sort of beautiful structure of downtown, Delaguerra Plaza, Library Plaza, tying those together. The trolley is a great idea. Why don't we right now have an electric shuttle going back and forth and see how that works. Like we've, we're really blowing it in our opportunity here to be trying things out that could work. And the, the bike situation, um, it is not for lack of us giving direction is all I can say about that. I do not know why we have not tried anything other than the green stripes, which I was not a fan of at the time. I, you know, I thought, well, green means go to people on a bicycle. That's just going to mean go fast right here. It's been a little bit better since they're gone, but those are the two things we've tried green or not green and like not even trying anything in between. Um, also, I think in this mindset of either this or that is a little bit dangerous. You know, I had someone saying, well, well we don't want police taking out youth and 
and you know having them down on the ground because they're on an electric bike and I was like whoa the police aren't going to do that nobody's got, like there's a lot in between um going to the extreme of of what would be you know a horrible outcome of course that's not going to happen to education to ambassadors to uh, police letting letting youth know that you know there's some issues there but the speed is too much the bikes are too heavy you got to i mean there are multiple ways to address this and we haven't even tried and that's what is really disappointing before we say forget it no ban or all the way yes we have to at least try something and that's been my i think all of our on the interim operation committee that's been our real extreme frustration um that street is so wide there is room for pedestrians for outdoor dining for some bicycles there's room for all of it we just need to try some things and be creative and run it through HLC and get their ideas and not have all of us be just reactive all the time. Um, but the visioning, we need that. We need that. And we need to all be going in the same direction. We really can't have some who are trying to pull in one direction and a whole other group in council or in leadership who are really seeing a different vision. And until that's articulated and approved, um, we just have this constant, uh, it seems like red herrings and and um, I don't know, sort of false focus on, on what the real issue is. And I don't know, there's a lot of good to focus on that people want to be together downtown. And we have to have sort of a human, uh, I don't know, a good, good way of life outcome of, of people in the community at all ages. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mentioned this on Jerry's show and I'll say it to you is we don't want people making decisions behind closed doors. That is not good. But what's really lacking council member Sneddon is a leader who is able to pull all of this these disparate perspectives and groups together as you just articulated and be on the same page. Randy is a great mayor, but he's kind of on an Island here. I mean, he's not on an Island. He has his supporters, but the others on the council don't necessarily agree with him. And so there's a, there, there's, he can't lead all the six of you because you all don't agree. And so and you've got a, a, you know, relatively new city administrator, you know, and, and, you know, it's, it's like, there's nobody who's saying, let's pull this all together and figure out a way. And then you've got the master plan and then you've got your committee and you've got the HLC and you've got all these different things. And it feels like whoever can come along and rescue this is going to have a bright political future. Um, and also I would say it's too bad that the city, and I, I don't want to badmouth MTD, but for whatever reason, there isn't the coordination that's necessary between our transit system and the city of Santa Barbara. I know some cities run their own transit. In this case, it's an independent agency, special district. But um, again, it's another, they're, they're two entities that compete with each other for all of these sort of, you know, needs. And it's just like, 
can we just get a trolley downtown, please? Like, right. can we figure out a way, you know, on to do it, you know? And all of these things, we could do it. Yeah. We could do it. I, I don't understand why we're not doing it. And with MTD, um, with just the transit in general, we don't have the 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 transit uh, culture that has public transit running around the clock. Like yeah. I can walk myself down to the wharf on a Sunday, but if I want to come home anytime after 6 p.m., I, I can't. I can't get back on a bus or, a, they, you know, they stop running at uh, after, you know, by 8 p.m. from the wharf up to just up State Street. I'm not very, very far. I, for a long time, thought we need micro transit. We just need, a, you know, electric, smaller vans that can just be moving all over. We have hillsides. We have, you know, we used to have the 22 bus that was up on the Riviera that was discontinued. Oh, yeah. you, can't, you know, you can't get up there without uh, uh I don't know, without an electric bike. I mean, pretty hard pressed. You can walk. Yes, you can always walk. Um, but which, which, by the way, my brother-in-law, he's a marathon, like extreme marathon ultra runner. And he has run every single street in Santa Barbara. Really? <laughs> so yeah, he has this map that's that's mapped everywhere he's been. And I'm like, okay, well, except for Trevor, the rest of us are not going to be able to walk all the places. But yes, we should have a trolley on State Street. And so in terms of, um, you know, Randy is a great mayor and he has a heart for the city. He is not, um, you know, he he is acting forward with what his beliefs are for what is best. There's not a duplicitous there. He's, he's genuine in that. Um, and actually, I would say he is a good leader. And it may be because he is such a good leader that there is this um, voice and um, active sort of different perspective that's becoming more um, vocal because, hmm. because I, I, I think he is a good leader of, of, of one particular um, perspective on what should happen to the street. The, the problem is that if you're really, we, we can't all be pulling in different different directions. We can't as a council give a direction uh, to, to staff and then have leadership um, in different ways giving counter direction in, in opposite directions. That's just going to hurt everybody. It's not going to make a great downtown it's not going to make a great community we need we need to be we need to get together on this and 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 at least give it a try at least try with good design guidelines try with some some bicycle repatterning try and and see what we've got because i think we have the potential of something really really spectacular yeah and you make a good point about randy is <clears throat> he's made it easier for a lot of people to feel the way they do about state street and speak out about it because he is the mayor and he has his strong perspectives about, you know, how it should look. And it, you know, a year ago, we might've been able to be like, Oh, Randy, come on. Now it's like, Whoa, Randy, you're actually pulling together a lot of support for, for your perspective, you know, and it creates more of this clash. So, so yes. And that is the good thing about Randy too, is he doesn't really take direction from unions or political parties. He takes direction from, for better or worse, whether you like him or not, what he thinks is best for the city. Yeah. Which I actually really 
applaud that. Like, I yeah. think that is a great way to lead by your genuine beliefs of what you think is best. Like he's really genuine. Um, and, you know, he's been supportive of the master planning process, you know, let that process play out. Um, but he, but he always says, but it won't be funded, <laughs> you know, kind of after that, you know, go ahead, let it play out. Um, but, uh, but no, he's, he's a very effective leader. And, and I think that is maybe, maybe why we're having a little bit of tension in this right now. But if what comes out of that, again, is transparency, talking about it in the open, having forums, having people get a chance to weigh in. And if what comes out of that is a better balance between those two, that's all good. Like it's it's good to have opposing views and and to be able to to talk that through. But we have to be really um once we do come to a direction, then then we need to move in that direction. But there's there's a lot of good potential there for you know having all the different viewpoints. But I will say every time this comes up, we get hundreds of emails in support of keeping the street closed and outdoor dining. And we get a handful, you know, even though there's a very expensive campaign right now to, you know, fix State Street or or you know, write to council members. And, you know, we get a handful of those versus really hundreds of people from all different ages. They're really quick to say, I've I've lived here 50 years and I've never come downtown before. But we need the microtransit, we need the Granada people to be able to be dropped off in front. We need accessibility. We need a trolley or a, you know, electric bus again. And I don't know why we are not doing those things right now. Yeah. And I like the downtown. I have a nine-year-old and um, we go downtown. And the only thing I would say to you as a leader is the only time I feel unsafe as a, you know, a dad with a nine-year-old is those bikes. Yeah. Like there have been many times when yeah. electric and, and you know how people have attitude with cars, right? Like if, you know, they drive fast or they'll tailgate you, like it's a way of showing attitude. People do that with bikes, you know? And so sometimes they'll drive as, they'll ride as close to you as possible and then turn at the last minute. But if you're nine, you don't know that, you know? And so that's, you guys should not plan for, you know, specific things, but you've heard it enough. That that's oh, yeah. a real thing, you know. So even on the sidewalks, I had someone who looked like maybe they were in maybe junior high was riding on the sidewalk behind me on one of the side streets, like clipping my heels. And I turned around and I was like, Oh, am I in your way? You know, just kind of like, oh. And he started like barking at me, like very aggressively, like barking. And I thought, I I was like, this, this is this is crazy. Like we need to let parents know that they're responsible for that. And and I don't know if you remember when those electric bikes first came to town, I did not want them on State Street. And I I said, put them on the side streets. Because if you yeah. put them on State Street, that's gonna give people the signal that oh pick them up on state street ride on state street and i wanted them on on the arterials and not on state street because of the hlc and then also because of the signaling so no those the electric bikes they are um too heavy too fast but it's also the ones that are personally owned by people mm. and it's summertime now and um i think the new guidelines that came out are not um strong enough you know i think I, again, I think we're really missing key opportunities 
to really pilot some, not even that creative. I mean, it's been done other places, just pilot some <laughs> already done ideas. It's, it, we're not, I'm not asking us to, you know, no pun intended, reinvent the wheel here, but it's, you know, just try something, anything, even painting, you know, you can do creative painting that, you know, causes people to slow down, like, cause they think it looks like there's a dip, you know, you can do shade mm. painting, you could get, there, there's, we've thrown out so many low cost ideas of things to try. I'm just really um, want to keep pushing that we, we, we've got to do something, but yes, I'm hearing you as a parent and I agree with you very i think the whole town agrees with you i mean there's nothing yeah and i have to think that at some point just smaller area that is close to cars like 500 to Korea or you know 500 to 900 block or something like because it is cool like i mean i like paseo nuevo i go into paseo nuevo and there's a lot of people in that center core area and there's a lot of activity and the less so as you spread out because of the architecture. But, you know, if you had like two or three blocks downtown, that was just the people blocks, no cars, no bikes, you know, like, or figure out a way to have a lane of bikes or something. That's really cool. That's really fun. But as you know, you've heard this too. It's a lot of blocks to be closed. To every- it's a lot of blocks to be closed just for pedestrian, but yeah. I don't think it's a lot of blocks to be closed for bike and then i think what came out in the master plan last meeting was they really wanted to see a purely pedestrian zone what would it that even look like and like i'm just thinking if around delegara plaza paseo nuevo 700 block i don't know how far either side if that was like purely pedestrian and you had to walk your bike through um that could really be that community center that would be I think pretty cool um, if you really knew that you didn't have to keep looking for the bikes or or worrying about that. And then meanwhile, let's really try some like genuine pilot programs and to see what, what might work. But yeah, I think like even now we could try a pilot block of purely pedestrian. Um, right now, we could do that tomorrow. Right. Um, you don't need a pandemic to do you it. You don't need a pandemic. <laughs> it, yeah, but we got to do something or it's really going to, I don't know, uh, lose momentum. And so well, you, you've got a Tuesday meeting coming up where you're going to be talking about parklets. So I look forward to hearing how that goes and, and what you have to say. You want to give Me us too. a clue? I'm looking forward to hearing how <laughs> that goes too. <laughs> It'll definitely be a lively discussion um, coming out of the HLC meeting last week. But uh, Council Member Kristen Snedden, Professor Kristen Snedden, thank you so much for your time and talking about climate change and sea level rise and ocean temperatures and doomer attitudes and lending your your uh, strong science perspective, expert perspective on this, and then talking about City of Santa Barbara issues. So always a pleasure. You may be the, the most appeared now on the podcast. I'm not Ooh. sure. I have to look at my numbers, you know, so, but. Um, well, I was one of the later ones to um, join. So that's, you know. Well, you know, like, like anything, you've got to build up to the main event. So. Ah, okay. <laughs> Thanks so for thank asking. You. It's always fun. Yeah. Well, have a good day. Take care. You too. Bye.